If you will, please turn your Bibles to Psalm 22. If you could hold a finger there, we're going to read also, just after Psalm 22 from Matthew 27. They're both pretty easy to find. The text I'm preaching on is Psalm 22, but it has a close connection to Matthew 7, which you'll understand as we get there. If you would please stand together. Let's give God's word the reverence it is due by standing as it is read, distinguishing it from the word of the servant sent to preach it. We're reminded elsewhere from Scripture that the grass outside will wither, its flowers will fade away, but the word of the living God endures forever. So as people strive to hear and heed it faithfully together, this is the word of God from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Like a ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now from Matthew 27, beginning at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them ran at once and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. As far the reading of God's word, please pray for me and with me. O Lord and our God, we turn our attention now to the reading and especially the preaching of your word. 
We believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We pray now that your spirit would open our hearts wide to not only receive the truth of your word, to walk in it as well by faith and not by sight. Bless us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. For those of you that are old enough, I'd like to ask if you remember where you were and and what you were doing on September 11, 2011. Many of us that were around then can remember particularly the events and the startling images that almost immediately appeared on the news, and this uh, horrible sense of shock, this horrible sense of wonder, 2001, sorry, distracted a handful of you, seeing if you're paying attention. But just that horrible sense of not only uh, shock and horror, but the sense of violation. Uh, And then the images that came along, especially after the second tower came down to the ground. Some years after that, I can remember going up to what they referred to as ground zero. And in the spot uh, where one of the towers had stood, they left this gigantic hole, almost the size of a football stadium. It's very eerie, very unnerving as you look down into this big rectangle that descends into darkness with water cascading literally into the darkness. It just seemed to be a summary of death itself and all that is wrong with the world. Today we're going to look at ground zero in the Bible, and that is the the cross of Christ. As today is Palm Sunday, and we lean into Monday, Thursday, then Good Friday, thankfully followed by Resurrection Sunday. Uh, My plan is to take Part of Psalm 22 today and the rest of Psalm 22 next week. We'll look at it uh, through the three points that I mentioned here in your outline. That the psalmist in Psalm 22 laments for three reasons. God seems far off because of the depth of his despair and because of the fact that death is near. I know that outlines are important and and helpful in a lot of ways. You should know for this particular psalm, it's actually a little hard uh, to neatly put into three parts. Psalm 22 as a whole is actually divided into three sections. Verses 1 through 18 are a lament, and that's what we're looking at today. Verses 19 through 21 is a separate section, uh, which is the psalmist's petition. And then verses 22 through 31, the end of the chapter, are praise because God saves and he delivers from death. But in the lament section, verses 1 through 18, it actually is a poetic movement back and forth as the psalmist reflects on his estate and then the personal work of God, back again to his estate, the personal work of God, and, and on it goes. One of the lovely touches in the psalm is the use of first-person pronouns, I and me. In other words, how the psalmist feels and the things that are being done to him along the way. So let's jump into the first point. Uh, God seems far off. The opening words of the psalm are enough to make us pause all by themselves. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are there, are there deeper words in all the Psalter? Are there more painful words in all the Bible? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? This is a psalm of David. 
David acknowledging here what we might refer to as the dark night of his soul, a phrase that I will use a few times in the sermon. David believes that God is real, and David believes that God is there, but God seems very distant, and that is the problem. David is not calling into question whether or not God exists. He assumes that. David is not calling into question whether or not God is good. He does not take issue with that. His simple concern is that the God who is, the God who is there, and the God who is good is far away. And I would guess that one of the reasons why this psalm so quickly touches all of us is because each and every one of us in our own way have experienced the dark night of the soul. Those moments in life when we feel that yes, God is there, yes, God is real, yes, God is good, but God is far from me. And that is the problem in the psalm. God is way out there, but I'm right here. So it it begs a question rhetorically throughout uh, at least the first half of the psalm, where is God in the midst of David's struggles? Where is God in the midst of our struggles? Where is God in the midst of our trials? That is the burden of the psalm. In some ways, it's vague to try to figure out exactly where in history we are with David, where in the life of David does Psalm 22 find its expression? Was it uh, when he was being chased by Saul? We're not sure, but we know that it happened. When it was, was it when he was being chased by his son Absalom? Uh, that too uh, is likely possible, but we are unsure. Sometimes the vagary is actually helpful. In a certain sense, you're not positive at exactly what point in life David finds himself when he writes Psalm 22. And the effect of that is that it actually makes the psalm rather flexible. It sort of bends around different moments in David's life, and therefore it potentially bends around different moments in our life. There may have been many times in David's life when he felt this way, and there may be different times in our life when we feel that God is far So the point again is, where is God in the midst of our trial? David describes his prayer life in rather intimate and exposing ways. Verses 2, he cries by day and by night, and yet there is no answer. And because there is no answer, there is no rest. Now for those of you that have been in the faith for a while and have matured in the faith, I'll ask you a difficult question. Have you ever prayed to the point of exhaustion? Have you ever literally prayed yourself out? Have you ever prayed yourself to sleep? Have your prayers ever blended seamlessly with cries for help and for mercy? Some of us know that feeling. That's exactly where the psalmist is at. He has poured himself out in prayer. He has emptied himself out in prayer. And he has done it day and night, both by day and by night. And yet he finds no rest. Many of us know this feeling when the hardest thing that you do in a day is actually try to go to sleep. That's where David finds him. When the burdens of our heart are actually heavier than our eyelids. So it's not just a dark night It turns into many dark nights. And yet, in the midst of his agony, in the midst of his toil and travail, he acknowledges the person and work of God. You see it again there in verses 3 and 4, where he offers up positive words about God. Yet, in contrast to his trial and where he finds himself, he acknowledges 
who God is. Yet you are holy and thrown on the praises of Israel, and you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. It is beautiful language. But it's also, at least from my vantage point, a little bit confusing. In some ways, it sounds like an expression of hope. And perhaps it is. But it also could potentially sound like David is saying, you helped them, but you haven't yet helped me. And you are fathers trusted, and you rescued them. But at this point in their psalm, David does not acknowledge that God has rescued him, at least not yet. And you are fathers trusted, as though he reminds himself of the history of Israel and the purpose for which it's recorded, that the people of God would not forget who their God is and all that their God had done. Remember Abraham and how many different times God delivered him, even from pagan kings and his own folly, or Jacob who in spite of his own deception and testing and failure, uh, perhaps time and time again, nonetheless, God delivered him and he saved him. Or Israel, as a nation, as a country, as a great people in Egypt, and 400 years, God saved them. He preserved his people. And finally, down to the life of David himself, there were others before him. Or Joshua, who in Joshua chapter 1 uh, says that there's great hope for Israel. Why? Because God is with them. He will not leave them nor forsake them. In other words, David's brief little reflection on history is a way of saying you've been there for them at a minimum. You delivered them and they were not put to shame, but it almost seems to beg rhetorically the question, what about me? And again, we know that feeling where God seems to sometimes work in other people's lives in ways that he's not working in ours, in other people's history or story, in ways that we wish he would do for us. And so after this brief little moment to the surface where David's head seems to pop up above the water, he slips further down into the darkness. And that takes us to our second point. David's lament is driven by the depth of his despair. So he's not the most overly confident person or self-flattering The language that he uses next in verse 6 is about as low as you go, literally. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. When I was a kid, uh, there was a song that I learned. It's not the most flattering or edifying song. It goes kind of like this. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. It's a great song. It's a classic. Only here, David has become the worm. And perhaps uh, the worms are about to eat him. Uh, The language of worms is symbolic of death. David is at his utter end. David is now in the dirt. He is scorned. He is despised by all mankind. What a broad, uh, far-reaching way of stating it. Uh, Those who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads at me. It really is his way of saying nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. And he even puts words to their scorn. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him as though others were saying, God has abandoned you. Look at your life. Look at all that it's come to. Taking God's name in vain, perhaps. Again, uh, David descending into the depths of despair. But verse 9, 
It's almost as though he who is sinking keeps reaching up and grasping for help out of the depth. Verse 9 is a wonderful reflection. It's almost as though uh, poetry of a covenant child reflecting on life itself from the very beginning. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast with beautiful language. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. What a great way to put it. Since I was brought into this world, you have been my God. From my mother's womb and breast, there you were for me. The language of, of being cast is kind of, it's actually more like being uh, laid down. The Hebrew is a little bit uh, vague and interesting. Uh, it's almost like an easy way to picture it would be when you're trying to put a, a, a child, a small child, to rest. And you lay them down, perhaps one parent uh, laying a child down on the chest of another, that that child might sleep. That's the imagery, the poetry that David is here describing. Not simply when he was upon his mother's breast, but even being laid down to rest as though being laid down on a parent's chest. His point is, my whole life you have been my God. This is David the man, David the king, reflecting as a covenant child, as an infant, before I knew my name, you knew me. Before I could put words from my lips, there you were, you have been my God. Now grown up, feeling far from God. Be not far from me now, for there is no one else. His honest admission, if you cannot help me, no one can. If you do not help me, no one will. This is, beloved, what we might refer to as faith's refinery. The trials of this age that cause us to step back and look at who is God and who are we not only before him, but with him. When all hope seems lost, in a certain sense, is when we come to our very best. When God seems so far off, sometimes it's then, then we most learn how truly near that he actually was. But at this point in the psalm, God tarries. Not only does God seem far, but very poetically, trouble draws near. David describes animals, but this is no petting zoo. Bulls are here encompassing him. Down in verse 12, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. All of these animals are animals of strength and power. This is not a petting zoo. These are not little kittens, puppies. Uh, the, the bulls here, bulls of Bashan, uh, were known for their strength. These are animals that you would not trifle with. <clears throat> and then ravening, roaring lions. At this time, lions were the apex predators of the day. Nothing hunted lions. Lions hunted whatever they wished. But if you look at the caption, uh, there's a neat little connection here. If you look at the caption at the very top of the psalm, David does not describe himself like a strong bull. David does not describe himself like a roaring lion. Uh, rather, he sets this tune to what? It's given us. The doe of the dawn. How fitting that David, who now stands before the strength of crushing bulls, surrounded 
by the apex predator roaring hunting lions, David now identifies more so with a scared female deer. If you've seen deer in the wild, you know that they're very skittish. Uh, They're not known for their hunting skills. They're not known for their bravery. They almost always look terrified. That's the language that David chooses or the tune that David chooses to set this psalm to. This is a familiar tune, the doe of the dawn. And the point that David is saying is before these bulls, before these lions, here stands David, timid, nervous, vulnerable, or to put it most clearly, like prey. Deer are prey. That is the point. And it brings us in many ways to a a third but very long point. So don't get excited that I'm moving so fast. Death is near. That's the point of the psalm. That's where the psalm is going. It's fitting that it should come to our attention in a week uh, like this, that we celebrate the resurrection a week from today, but before the resurrection comes the death of Christ. Death is near. David, in the psalm now, describes his body in ways that are far less than flattering. I am poured out like water, verse 14, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. David has come now to the point of death. He's poured out like water. He began the psalm by saying uh, that he's emotionally poured out in prayer. He is spiritually poured out in prayer. Now he describes himself as being physically poured out, literally drying up and returning to the dust. He has come to the point of physical exhaustion. You might say this doe of the dawn has been running all night, pursued by its apex predators, and now he has been caught. His body has been trampled, verse 14. He is starved. He has been physically abused. His body has become diminished. His bones are out of joint, a sign of trauma. His heart now melts like wax before a fire. His strength is gone. There's very little of David the man remaining. He is like broken, dry clay pottery. If you're wondering what a potsherd is, it's dry, brittle clay. His strength is gone like pottery to the point that his tongue now sticks to his mouth. Have you ever ran or exercised to the point where you were so thirsty you could barely talk and your tongue sticks to the top of your mouth? It's a horrible feeling, that cotton mouth gone to the extreme. That's what David is describing here. His own tongue now stuck to the top of his mouth, so parched. Finally, I'm returning to the dust from which I came. Dogs encircle me. They now close in. At any moment, I will become their prey. Every second, they are preparing for the feast. And finally, perhaps one of the more familiar quotes that come out of Psalm 22, almost surprising, almost as though it were out of place. He says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. I am like one who has been crucified. I can count my bones. I am withering away. And as I die, they stare at me. They gloat at me. 
they even cast lots for my clothes. Now, for those of you that have been around the faith and the Bible for a while, my guess is if I stopped right now, you would be very frustrated. Not just because the sermon would be on the shorter side, but because you know, you know if you know your Bibles, that Psalm 22 doesn't end in Psalm 22. And that the story of the doe of the dawn, the king who is persecuted and come to the end of himself amidst his trials, you know it does not end with King David. And that the very cry that begins the psalm is not the cry of David alone or even yours alone, but it comes to us by way of another who has an even more intimate connection with this psalm because he not only inspired it, he fulfilled it. Psalm 22 is perhaps one of the richest psalms in the Old Testament in the sense that it has the most phrases taken up upon the lips of the Savior at the cross, in his suffering, in his passion, in his dereliction. For it's not simply David or the people of God who asked the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was Jesus who ultimately asked that question and he did so from the cross. But not only the question of the psalmist and the plight of the psalmist, why are you so far, but why is trouble so near? Even that too must be understood through the lens of what Jesus experienced at the cross. For it was also of Jesus that dogs stood circling and said, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. And it was Jesus again who from the cross experienced the great pain and agony that is poetically described in Psalm 22, but physically experienced by Jesus himself. My bones are out of joint. They have pierced my hands and feet. What is poetry for David was reality for the Savior. And not simply the sense that God was far and trouble was near and his body was broken, but the shame. Beyond dividing or piercing his hands and feet, they divide my garments and cast lots for my clothes. They made sport of him. And why is this the last one? Do you ever wonder? Why is this uh, the last one? you ever thought of the irony that the day that Jesus died, the unrighteous wore his clothes? The day that Jesus died, the unrighteous wore his clothes. The unrighteous clothed in the garments of the king. And what is he clothed in? In a certain sense, nakedness. In another sense, nothing more than the shame of their sins. Why did Jesus endure the dark night of the soul? That's really the question of the psalm. It doesn't end upon the psalmist. It doesn't terminate nearly upon us. It really centers upon the Savior himself. The Savior is upon the one who fulfills these things most clearly and unambiguously. So why did Jesus endure the dark night of the soul upon the cross? The answer, beloved, is for you. He took 
our dark night. He took a night, a dark night of the soul that was far darker than anything that even David experienced. For David embraces this through poetry. Yes, he suffered in his life, but Jesus suffered more. And yes, we have suffered in life, but Jesus suffered far, far more. Jesus endured the dark night of the soul from the cross for us so that we, and capture this difference, beloved, he endured the dark night so that we would not endure the dark night of eternity. That is why Jesus took not simply his place on the cross, but our place upon the cross. You might ask it this way, why was Jesus forsaken by his own father at the cross? The answer, again, is so that you and I never would be. Not only that we would not experience the dark night of eternity, but that we would never be abandoned by our God, our Father, our Redeemer, our friend. So in a certain sense, it becomes very important to wrestle with the question about the dark night of the soul, because we all at least feel the darkness that David feels on occasion. But is God truly far away Or is it that we feel that God is far away? Is it not the same God who promised to those on this side of the cross that I will never leave you nor forsake you? So there may be a genuine sense in which we feel that God is far away. Uh, But this is where I find myself becoming the perfect opposite of Obi-Wan Kenobi, who would say over and over again, Luke, trust your feelings. And we should do the very opposite. Don't trust your feelings. Trust God's word. That's the point. Surely we pass through dark valleys in this life. There's no question. There is no doubt that we all pass through dark valleys in this life, even as Christians. But we never travel those valleys alone. But there is a slight warning that should come at some point. Because if you do not know Jesus... The darkness you've experienced thus far is nothing compared to the eternal dark night that awaits. But for those who repent and believe, those who turn to Jesus with true and living faith, uh, do you cling to this promise that God makes? I will never leave you nor forsake you because the Son of God was forsaken in your place, on your behalf, for you. And therefore, you will never be forsaken. It's actually the most wonderful, wonderful promise. In fact, you might even put it this way. Is there any greater promise made to the Christian in all of Scripture than God's promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you, uh, which is signed, sealed, and delivered by the death of his son who was forsaken in our place? We need to know that Jesus loves us so much that he came into the world to endure not only the dark night of the cross, but death itself, so that we would reach our final destiny, eternal day, eternal light, and the eternal presence of God. And not only that, guess what? You get clothes. And what shall you be clothed in but the righteousness of Christ? It is no simple poetry that the unrighteous wore his clothes 
is, does not become in many ways a preview of the hope that we have, that when we stand before God, uh, we will not be naked, as we are told several places in Scripture, but rather we'll be clothed in the righteousness of the Son of God. It's not these kinds of clothes that we need to enter heaven. It's His righteousness. And being clothed in Him, we shall never know that sense of shame and awkwardness that Adam and Eve did, but rather we shall know uh, just the great welcome of our God in heaven, who's forgiven all of our sins because he poured out its wrath upon Jesus, clothed in his righteousness, no longer to be clothed in our shame. John Calvin had a great line. He said, true faith does not gain the victory at first, but after suffering many blows. And that was something that David the psalmist learned. That true faith would grow by means of faith's refinery. And David grew. I'm not telling you the full story. The rest of it, this is like one of those cliffhangers we have to come back next week, right? Uh, but David's psalm does not end with death. It actually ends with praise and in heaven. Psalm 22 was not simply David's, and it was not simply the psalm of Jesus. It becomes ours by way of our union with him. David's hope is found in the Savior the Savior's life given for us now gives to us a very great hope as well. And it even enables us to do what David learns to do through faith's refinery, that is to say the trials that he endured, which is to trust God through the dark night of the soul. And to know that he is there even when it doesn't feel like it. I began the sermon by mentioning ground zero. And this is a this is a great week. It's been nicknamed Holy Week. And I don't want to go off the deep end here with church calendar and stuff like that. Uh, but, I, but I sometimes wonder what one of our hymns says. Uh, Ye who think of sin but lightly, hear its guilt may estimate. One of the worst things we can do as a Christian, anyone, is to think too lightly of sin. To think too lightly of sin. And this week, with a few days from now, Monday, Thursday, and then what we call uh, Good Friday, which is kind of an ironic title in many ways, it's actually a great week to think about the reality, the depth, the ugliness of sin. Not that it ends there, praise God, but the only reason it doesn't end there is because God thought so significantly about the reality of our sin, he did something. And what he did was he sent his son from the eternal light of heaven to come and endure the dark night of the soul at the cross. This would be a great week to think about the cross. Ye who think of sin but lightly, hear its guilt may estimate. How costly was our salvation? Ask the Son of God when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's pray. Lord, you know that sometimes it's good for us to simply to be still. And to think soberly <clears throat> about our lives in this world in which we live. To meditate 
upon the deep truths of your word and the certain and inescapable realities. Many of us here, Lord, find great connection with Psalm 22. We have passed through the dark night of the soul. We may be enduring what feels for us to be the dark night of our souls. We hear the echo of David's trial, and it seems to strike so close to home. It seems to be a song so familiar to our own hearts. And so we thank you, O Lord, that you've given us the gift of such poetry. How much more do we thank you for the gift of your Son, the one who came not only to fulfill it, but to take our place in death upon the cross, to endure the dark night of the soul, to ask the very same questions that David asked, and that we too are inclined to ask on a question. We know, Lord, that in a certain sense we've only done partial justice to this psalm, for it does not end in dust, even though the sermon appears to end on that note. But we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to think soberly and seriously about our lives and how costly our salvation was. And this week, as uh, many people do find occasion to reflect upon the suffering of our Savior in our place, would help us to do that in such a way that we would not become depressed, but rather the very opposite, that we would be overwhelmed with gratitude. For soon, O Lord, the gates of death, the gates of hell, uh, shall be stormed and defeated by the resurrection. And the great triumphant amen, the hallelujah of all history, shall be sung in heaven and on earth. So Lord, help us to fix our eyes upon Christ, to rest in him, and to rejoice in the hope of eternal day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.